on 80s High. This last week, we lost one of the great storytellers that was very Ooh. formidable in my childhood. Yeah, yeah. Beverly Cleary. Mouse and the Motorcycle. Ralph S. Mouse. Ralph S. Also Mouse. Also stories of Henry Huggins, Ribsy, Ramona, and Beezus, Quimby, and a whole other cast Beezus. of characters. Ramona. So what I thought we could do is celebrate the storyteller, the librarian, and the author, that is Beverly Cleary. That's awesome. That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that sits in the library on a rainy day and takes in all the wholesome goodness that was 80s literary nostalgia. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Welcome back. Or if it's your first time, welcome. We're glad to have you. Yeah, thanks for joining us. We're excited to be back. We had a couple weeks off doing other things. So we're, we're back in the studio, as the uh, important <laughs> professionals say. As <laughs> the studio. Do you know the things? I mean, didn't we try and challenge ourselves to read the entire collection, everything our author wrote? What do you mean, did we try? I read every single word Beverly Clear has ever written. Oh, crap. Okay. I, I got a hold of her emails. Like I was, I got hold of her emails. <laughs> Christopher, stop writing us. We can't handle all did, this anymore. <laughs> I did a freedom of information request. It's great. I'm I'm a little late in sharing this news, but it's relevant to one of our recent episodes that came out. So mm. we did an episode not too long ago on Mystery Science Theater 3000. Oh yes. And what's fun is I emailed that team trying to get them on the show, and they wrote a very polite email back saying. No, the nicest way that you could. But they said, we're so sorry. Joel Hodgson is too busy right now to do stuff like this. But thanks so much for your support. And I was like, Joel, come on, man. What are you doing? What, and at what? the time, we didn't know what that meant. Right. We were like, what could you be busy with? And like less than a week later, mm. MST3K announced another Kickstarter and try and launch their own thing. They're all this like this pride of like no station this time, no Comedy Central, no small Wisconsin TV station, no mm-hmm. sci-fi, no Netflix. We're doing it on our own. And releasing their own app even to watch it through. Oh my like, gosh. Wow, this that's is great. cool. That's so, awesome. Uh, it's just cool. There's more MST3K coming at you. So Support him however he can. Are we going to allow Joel that transgression of not being on the show or providing input yeah. because he's doing that? Are we going to allow it? Well, you know, I feel like when you launch a new property, a new product, you're a little more desperate to get your name out there. You know, you're trying to promote it. I might reach out when this new platform launches and see if he's changed his mind on just how busy his schedule is. We'll see. He's going to regret not coming through. <laughs> Should have been there. Because by now, MST... 3,000 has a lot of relevance to how popular our show is getting, from what I recall you seeing on the back number. So it just would have been good timing. It would have been good timing for it would have made him look good. I'm just saying. Ben loves to uh, talk about all of our middling success. The- <laughs> <laughs> Boom! 
Big success. Oh, Booming. Massive, massive. Our podcast is flying off the shelves. <laughs> yeah. If you go to your local podcast dispensary and they've run out of episodes, we promise we'll get them in stock for you. There's a chip shortage, just like with uh, cars right now. There's a That's chip shortage. Why. That's why so many people are blowing out their phones downloading our podcast that the yeah. chips are, are – we're out of them. Mystery solved. <laughs> so – are we ready to uh, hear those morning announcements, get our day sort of mapped out before we go to our first period? I totally am. I hope we have a guest librarian announcer, which would be very cool. Ooh. Right? It would be appropriate. Let's find out. Attention, 80s high. I'm Margie, your exchange student from Canada, where A's are not just given in classrooms. Here to share today's homeroom announcements. If you've fallen and can't get up, then follow 80s high podcast on Instagram for tips on how to get back on your feet. For lunch today, we'll be having breakfast. There will be pancakes, eggs, and of course, some Canadian bacon, all served with the generous helping of maple syrup. Now you know the secret to why Canadians are so sweet. Speaking of sweet, if you're on the hunt for coupons for some ice cream cones or s'more cereal, they're giving these away to the first 20 people who join the class of 80s high. Not only will you be on a sugar high, but it's also a great way to know topics in advance, take bodacious surveys, and potentially be the voice of future announcements. Email 80shighpodcast at gmail.com to join. That's 80S. After school today, the book club will be meeting at the library to discuss their latest book, It, by Stephen King. Please note, the librarian has said that there will be zero tolerance for clowning around. In order to raise funds for new uniforms, the Fighting Mogawais will be leading jazzercise classes on the field after school each day this week. Make sure you sign up to support our team. Thank you, and have a dope day. Go Mogawais! Okay, well, with all of that said, I think it's time we go to history class and we learn a little bit more about today's subject, the one, the only, author, literary legend herself, Ms. Beverly Cleary. What do you say? I mean, I'm literally going to go to detention if I don't end up there, so we've got to get there stat. Oh my gosh, let's go. Hall monitors everywhere. Just to get a little extra credit, I stopped by the library, found the history book aisle, and just picked up a few little extra tomes to bring to class. They just, you know, and set an apple on the teacher's desk just to, there it is. just to help me out here. Tilt the odds into your favor. Is that how it goes? Yeah, exactly. It's like uh, Ralphie in A Christmas Story when he, like, sets the fruit basket on the desk when, when he yeah. submits his Yeah, and you just poem. stand there staring with a giant smile. That's and me And the teacher's like, you can sit down can now, sit down Ben. Now. <laughs> and I'm like, I love these books. Yeah. Before you get into it, I need to know how many times did you write out Beverly Clearly? <laughs> <laughs> just, like, instinctually you're writing the word clearly? Yes! I don't think I did, actually. I was unable to write Cleary correctly the first time ever. Every time I types it out, Beverly clearly. It's just natural, clearly. You have oh to wonder God. how many children wrote letters to this author telling how much her books meant to them and they addressed it to Ms. Clearly. And there is like maybe in Oregon, in Portland, there is a Beverly Clearly like six blocks away. And she's like, who are these kids? Why do I keep getting all of what these letters? What is happening? Oh, oh God, man. that's great. We'll get to it later, but uh, her kids said that growing up with her was a mostly normal life, but they said their mailbox was the largest possible mailbox because of all the fan mail that she got. So they, I, I saw it on one of the um, documentaries I, I was watching, and it's a giant, massive, like oversized. It'd be like the the World 4 of Super Mario Brothers 3, the giant world. It'd be <laughs> like that world. kind of a mailbox is what she had in front of their house. That warms my heart to know that. That's great. 
So, Ben, do you know anything about Ms. Beverly Cleary? You know, it's a little, it takes me back to the days of Pat Benatar, where I am coming in like one of the three blind mice Okay. on this. I mean, really a, a gaping hole in my knowledge. Okay. So I'm excited to learn, though. I'm, I'm the kind of kid who likes to sit at the front of the class and take a bunch of notes. So I'm really excited. Okay. So, born Beverly Atlee Bunn. On April 12th, 1916, Mm. our young Beverly grows up in McMinnville, Oregon, low rural community, and lives there with her family till she's about six years old when her family moves to Portland, Oregon. Now, remember, this is like early 20s, so we're talking the Great Depression, and work is hard, so they move to the city in the hopes that, you know, there's more job prospects there because things are just not looking great back in their hometown. What do you feel like Portland is like? At this time in history. Fewer gluten-free cupcakes. Um, let's see. Fewer waxed mustaches, oddly enough. Well, because there's that there's that Portlandia music video of the dream of the 90s is alive in Portland, right. but it's the 1890s. <laughs> and so, like, you know, I, I'm just curious. I want to get my head in the setting. I want to picture her influences as So an just author. imagine current day Portland, and I think you're more or less going to be all set. So. This explains so much. Okay, now I get it. Growing up there, she has a hard time adjusting to moving from this rural community to living in the city. First grade, you know, this is back when there's reading groups. She's placed into the group for struggling readers. Really? Do you remember the designations that teachers used to like low-key give the reading groups like animal names? Did you ever, did this happen in your kindergarten, first grade? You were allowed to be in reading groups? Yeah, they would like separate readers. This happened in my first grade, first grade? I think it was first grade. We had like different names for our groups. So there's the bluebirds, the redbirds, and the blackbirds. That's what you were sorted into, but what you may not realize is that they, the teacher was sorting you by your reading speed. What? Yeah. So she's shockingly in the struggling reader group? She sent to the struggling group, the Blackbirds, which she said wow. to be a Blackbird was to be disgraced. Uh, she wanted Whoa. to read, but she just somehow couldn't. And I think part of this was her struggle of coming from, you know, this rural community to living in the city, making that big life adjustment. But also, she never attended kindergarten. So what? this is like her first kind of traditional school experience. One of the things that she's really frustrated with is she just found reading these books boring. She complained that the stories were simple. They were unsurprising. And she's like, why are these authors not using humor or writing about ordinary people? Yeah. What is the deal? And on this one apocryphal day in third grade, a rainy afternoon, she starts reading a book and finds she actually enjoys it. It's called The Dutch Twins. It's about the adventures of ordinary children. The Hardy Boys. Were they Dutch? Maybe these are the Dutch Hardy Boys. I think Hardy is a Dutch last name. Or would it be the Hardly Boys? Because it's Beverly Clearly. (laughs) So she's like, okay, this is actually a good book. And she said, this was an epiphany for her. This caused her to spend a lot more time reading and going to the library. So this book finally was like, okay, it clicked for her. And Mm. by sixth grade... She's writing essays in class, and her teacher's like, you should become a children's writer because your assignments are that good. Had her reading improved enough by then? Like, is she a great writer, but still, like, has trouble reading? Have you ever had a teacher that encourages you to do a thing? Like, it really builds you up, but it's not based on nothing, right? Like, I think she's not – I don't know that she's, like, the head of the class, but she's clearly picking up on the reading, and she's writing these great stories. So things are starting to click for her. I think it's kind of that rough start. Now she's off to the races. 
Listen, listener, you could be that mentor. Lift someone up. You could be nurturing the next Beverly Cleary. You never know. So she graduates from high school in 1934, and she goes to a junior college in Ontario, California, which offers lower tuition fees uh, than four-year universities. Obviously a big deal, again, even in regular times, but this is still the Great Depression. So money is not just flowing everywhere. And I just want to say, she's geographically difficult to track because she goes to Portland, which is in both Oregon and Maine, Mm. and she goes to Ontario, California, which is both in California and Canada. I could see why all this fan mail could get really mixed up, is what I'm trying to say. Well, this is a great segue into a couple things. Ben, what career? So she goes to this junior college. And what do you think her aspiring career is? So this is young Beverly Cleary. She's had all of this inspiration of these books. She's moving around a lot. She's moving to ambiguous locations. Moving to ambiguous locations, writing, documenting a lot of things about normal daily life. I think she wants to run a witness protection program. Mm, Okay. Shuffle people around and write up false lives for them. She's going to the FBI. She's working on her. Okay. All right. No. Okay. If I take a real guess, wow, this is really interesting. Where she's at, what she's been doing. Yeah. I'm going to have to go with Butter Churner. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) You're so close. You're so close. Ah, so close. We did ask the class of 80s high, if a children's book author had a secret everyday identity, what would be their coolest cover job? Oh, okay. Cool. So we know she becomes an author, but maybe she's also like that FBI witness protection person, that butter churner. Obviously. So one of our listeners says, an imagination trip guide. It's That's basically oh. what, a, that's what an author kind of is. Taking people on these like mental journeys of like, picture it. That's a very cool name just for an author. Imagination Trip Guide. Imagination Trip Guide. If you're an author listening to this, you put that on your resume. If your name is Trip Guide, you just need to be <laughs> some kind of imagination tour leader. Trip Guide is a great like travel. Why is that travel show not a thing? Like, Why don't we have yeah. Trip Guide taking you around, around the world? Around the world with Trip Guide. Exactly. That, sounds, that rolls right uh, off the tongue. So uh, good. So genius. Good. So good. Genius. Another person says, I think it would be interesting if she did something exceedingly unexpected or inappropriate because, you know, she's writing these wholesome children's books. So her cover job is a little bit, you know, scandalous. I don't know. What do you think, Ben? I was like the old flippy-do reversey. You know, like when you see like a huge jacked person and they're called tiny. Like, exactly. I, I like it. I, I I can dig it. I get the humor in it. I'm I down. can see Beverly wanting to go against type. Like, you know, you think she's this sweet old lady and she's just, you know, cusses like a sailor. Right. And then one of our other listeners said... What about a librarian? Which is the correct answer. Ding, 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 you win! Not only did she become a librarian, but that's what she went to school for, which, I mean, seems obvious, but we all know, like, at least in modern times, a lot of people switch their majors a lot. You go in for yeah. a th- I switched my major, I went in for a thing, and I was like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. I switched halfway through as well. Yeah, you, you, you learn new stuff. I was going to go in and be a accountant. And then I was like, no, I'm going to major in podcasting. And the rest <laughs> is history. So, yeah. So she has aspirations of becoming not just a librarian, a children's librarian. And so she spends two years at Chaffee. That's the name of the college she's at. It sounds kind of fancy. Chaffee Junior College. I don't know. It, it sounds fancy. It's in California. So, you know. It's in California. That's pretty nice. So after two years there, she's accepted to the University of California, Berkeley. And that's where she goes and gets her BA in English. What do you do with a BA in English? 
What is my life supposed to be? Now listen. Four years of college and plenty of knowledge has earned me this useless degree. That's just one perspective. That's just one. That's one. Listen, listen. As a former academic advisor of liberal arts students. Just in case you know, that's a shout out to one of the hit songs from the Avenue Q Broadway musical. I okay. just make that up. We all know you're not that clever, Ben. But <laughs> oh, you monster. How well, dare you? It's not wrong, though. So, (laughs) but anyway, I just, I have to come out strong. I don't like the, what are you going to do with this degree? I don't like it. I'm just, I'm going to lay my stake in the ground firmly here and say, come at me if you disagree. (laughs) I will defend my liberal arts people to the very end. That's good. It's good. So Cleary also says, you know, when she's in school, she's doing a bunch of odd jobs, right? As most college students are doing, she's got to pay tuition. She's a seamstress. She's a chambermaid. And she said this was two of the most interesting years of her life. Like a real seamstress? Yes. Have you taken the Seattle Underground tour? I have not. So in the late 1800s, women of a certain, the oldest job in history that we know of were nicknamed seamstresses in Seattle to avoid the police. You're trying to dovetail back to this illicit activity that she's doing in her cover job. Absolutely. So when she calls herself a seamstress in the time when certain purveyors of a certain trade were calling themselves seamstresses, I just, the question comes up. I just have to ask the Clearly, estate's going to come after us. You need to- I never said she was. It's a question. You're slandering now. You're slandering. So- Oh, no. Don't do it. Anyway, so uh, she does a lot of this work and she said, again, this is two of the most interesting years of my life, largely also because- she met her future husband, Mr. Clarence Cleary. Ooh. Got a little alliteration going on there. Clarence, Clarence Cleary. Cleary. Paint me a picture here. Where do you think Beverly and Clarence met? I, okay, so they lock eyes. They see each other. It's love at first sight. What's going on? Paint us this picture. Where do you think this takes place? Yeah, so this is obvious, right? Because she's, she's studying in California. Okay, she's at the beach. She has created a modest yet respectable sandcastle nearby. Okay. And she is on a very fashionable towel underneath a large parasol. She's got those cool, like, pointy sunglasses that point in the corner. Yep. She's casually reading. And Clarence Cleary, also known as California's state surfing champion, Mm. is rolling in on a wave doing hang 10 on the front. Okay. And their eyes lock. Mm -hmm. And he loses concentration. Bumps into a seal, flies off the surfboard, and she, after which we have not talked about yet, runs out into the sea, swims, saves his life, CPR, magic and love. Wow. That's what happened. That's amazing. You're like, detail for detail, spot on. Right? All the way down to the glasses she's wearing. We didn't realize that all of those 50s surfer movies are based after Beverly's life. (laughs) Of their loving, tender moment of meeting. It's a meet-cute, and it's the first meet-cute. So clearly, you are going to be asked to write her biopic, uh, because that was amazing, but it actually happens at a school dance. The Under the Sea dance? The fish under the sea dance. No, no, it was the enchantment under the sea dance. The enchantment, yeah, right. Our first date. Good. I'll never forget it, George. It's the night of that terrible thunderstorm. What, Lorraine? What? Okay, I'm going to stop. But we're going to get to those eventually. We promise, class of 80s high, we'll get there. I refuse. We're not going to do anything (laughs) on the nose. What? (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh, my God. I'm going to take a time machine back to stop you from saying that. I was going to say, I know what the next topic is going to be. It's It's going to be a spite pick from Ben. (laughs) Listen up, you jerk. Okay. So they meet at a school dance. 
1939, she graduated from the School of Librarianship at the University of Washington with a second bachelor's degree in library science because girlfriend's like, I don't want just one degree. I'm going to get two. UW! Do, 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 do. She's at the UW at a time when, you know, a lot of women aren't able to go to college or even allowed or encouraged. And she's like, hold my book. I'm getting a second degree. Remind me, when did she graduate? So she gets a bachelor's degree in 1939. Okay. And then she gets another one. I'm sorry, 1938. And then she gets another one in 1939. So there was some real big stuff that just happened while she's there. That's the 1930s Olympics, where the UW crew team defeats oh. Germany, of which the famous book, The Boys in the Boat, of which that shell can be viewed at the shell house on UW's waterfront. So she was, little did they know, the gold medal champion boys, little did they know that they were at the same school at wow. the same time as global sensation auth- children's author Beverly Cleary. How cool is that? That's really great. Wow. What a bright time in history. Powerhouse class coming out of UW in the the late 30s. They are killing it. Bam! So she graduates and she takes a year-long position at a children's library in Yakima, Washington. That's right. She's in our neck of the woods firmly once again. A lot of tasty fruit grown in Yakima Valley. Indeed. And 1940, she and her beau are married. Yay, you guys did it! Hooray! And after World War II, they settle in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California. So she's, like, all over the West Coast, which is great. I love it. So a couple things. As a librarian, she really empathized with her, the kids, with her patrons that came in because they had difficulty finding books with characters they could identify with. She's Mm. like, I had the exact same issue when I was your age. She looks high and low for these books, and she can't find enough that would actually appeal to the kids. And it's also during this time that she's performing these live storytelling events as the librarian, talking to kids, you know, getting them interested in reading and these characters and these stories. And it's at this point she's like, look, (laughs) these fools clearly aren't going to be writing the books these kids want. Hold my book. Once again. Hold my book. I'm going to write these for the kids myself. All the pieces kind of fall into place. That sixth grade teacher who's like, you should be a writer and all this stuff happening. And she's like, yeah, if people aren't writing the books, it's time for me to do it. Amazing. Way to like see the opportunity and be like, all right, if no one else is going to fill this gap, I guess the the bat signal in the sky says, clearly, it's got to be me. I'm doing this. And in true librarian spirit, she says, kids deserve books of literary quality. Mm. And librarians are so important in encouraging them to read and selecting books that are appropriate. So she takes to the metaphorical pen and paper, or typewriter, actually, and she starts to write her first book, Henry Huggins, uh, which is published in 1950. I was wondering which was going to be the first. Okay, Henry Huggins. Got it. Henry Huggins, yeah. And this was the first in a series of fictional chapter books about Henry, his dog, Ribsy, and then eventually spins off into his neighborhood friend, Beezus, and her little sister, Ramona. And as we all know, that's probably one of her biggest characters, young Ramona Quimby. No relation to Officer Quimbley. No. Simpsons. I, as we've already decided, the L in the last word is wrong. There are Clearly, no L's. Hardly no Quimbley. L's. No, no. Take him out. She's no trying good. to help us learn vocabulary. Good for you, helping us get this straight. If it ends in L-Y, it does not apply. Oh, that's good. That's good to remember. Okay. So when she's writing this book, she took inspiration from all those times that she was telling stories to children during those story hours at the library in Yakima. And... Like many of her later works, 
Henry Huggins is a novel about people living ordinary lives. Like I said, that's what she wanted when she was a kid. She's like, just ordinary people doing their own thing and having humor and fun and spirit and livelihood to it. And, you know, she kind of based it on some of her own childhood experiences, uh, the kids in her neighborhood growing up, as well as the children that she met while working as a librarian. Those were a lot of the sources of inspiration that she had for her stories. Her book was accepted by Morrow, the first publisher she sent it to. What? Way to go. The very first publisher she sent it to, they were like, yep, this is it. Now, it had been initially rejected by them, but she added the characters of Beezus and Ramona while revising it because what she realized was that all the characters in there were single kids. And she's like, well, some of them need siblings. So she kind of came up with these characters in response to that. And of course, like I said, that spun off into two of her very well-known characters wow. uh, with her own series. So. Hey, way, way to stick with it there. You know, at first you don't succeed. Keep going. What was it? Stephen King had like, what, 30, 40 rejections before somebody took up uh, Carrie, I think, his first novel. And really? Yeah. That's like us with this podcast, man. We're, we're just going to keep pushing it out there. Eventually, someone's going to listen. Someone. Somewhere. Someone's going to pick it up eventually. Someone's going to pick it up. <laughs> Fingers crossed. One of these days. I'm going to start calling myself Ramona. You're now Beezus, and let's start publishing these shows. Okay. So after Henry Huggins, her first book that centers on the Quimby sisters, Beezus and Ramona, as mentioned. Mm. It's published in 1955, so it's five years later. Okay. The publisher had asked her to write a book about a kindergarten student, and she kind of resisted and was like, well, I don't want to do that, because she did not attend kindergarten herself, as we learned earlier oh. in class. And they say, write what you know, right? So if she wasn't yep. in kindergarten, interesting. Okay. Yeah. But she did end up changing her mind uh, after the birth of her twins. So she had twin boy and girl, and that kind of, okay, she's, you know, capitulated on that a little bit, changed her mind, was like, all right. Let's write that. Huh. And she's been credited as one of the first authors of children's literature to figure emotional realism in the narratives of her characters and to center a lot of her stories on children in middle class families. Uh, just looking for some context for fun. I was just trying to see what else is going on in 1955. Yeah. Uh, Lay it on me. And interesting, just related Johnny Carson show debuts that year. Okay. Mickey Mouse Club debuts that year. Yeah. Uh, other big shoes, The Honeymooners, Gunsmoke, Lassie oh, comes out Lassie. in 1955. I'm, just trying to, I'm trying to give like a pop culture context for yeah. when this book is coming out. Like what other, what else are people consuming at this time? What other books are coming out at that time? Well, I'm so glad you asked. Uh, the Man in the Gray Flannel Suit by Sloane mm. Wilson was a big hit. Okay. Uh, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov. And another hugely popular female artist, Witness for the Prosecution by Agatha Christie. Oh, Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie coming in hot. That's right. Yeah, and then hit songs. So movies, The Seven Year Itch is very big, of course. Uh, and then songs Rock Around the Clock, The Yellow Rose of Texas, Davy Crockett, Love is a Many Splendid Thing. So this is this is where she's injecting this great book, is in this sort of milieu of And it sounds like not culture. a lot of children's content. I mean, yeah, it's besides Mickey adults. Mouse Club. That's it. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. So she's filling a much needed gap in children's content. Absolutely. Oh, and Disneyland opened in Anaheim. Mm, mm, mm -hmm. But not everyone can go to Disneyland. Some people need an imagination trip guide. There it is. And that's where she comes in. So I want to end the class with just a few valuable lessons that Cleary has shared in her work. You know, she said she never forgot the advice her mother gave her. Keep it funny. People always like to read something funny. Again, this seems kind of simple, but when you think about it, at least in the children's uh, literature arena, you know, she's like, that wasn't there. And that always stuck with her and was a real guiding force to the stories that she wrote. 
She said something that a college English professor told her really guided a lot of her writing as well. The proper subject of the novel is universal human experience. Again, you know, it's something that everyone can relate to. Everyday families, kids, middle class, all that kind of stuff. So you can really see this advice sticks with her and influences her work. Uh, Also, as a girl, she won a contest for writing the best essay about an animal. How much money do you think she got as prize money for this essay? How old was she? Uh, Doesn't say. She just says a girl. Okay, so she's under 18. Let's say she's a, you know, elementary school kid. I'll go for a dime. Two dollars, actually. Dude, whoa! You're the next contestant on (laughs) the prize. Woo, good for her. Yeah, that's great. Upon collecting said prize, she was told no one else had entered the contest. I mean, so you just win by default? I mean, on one hand, I was like, oh, that's really sad. Like, she was probably all excited. And then someone's like, yeah, no, nobody else entered. So, but (laughs) she said that this was one of the most valuable lessons to her on writing. And that is try. So do it. You, you yeah. know, if you don't do it, you never know. So I was like, okay, she she spun it positively, no, which that's is good. A very I, good lesson. I was starting to like get a little tear in my eye, like, oh, poor little Beverly. I just see her there, and you're like, yeah, kid, you won by default. And then you know, she's just tears. Oh no, if I were little Beverly, I'd be like, yo, I got first place. That's and I would tell no more context to everybody I met from there on. Like, I was first place. Yeah, little Chris would have been bawling somewhere, <laughs> sobbing in a corner with his Why little head in his lap. Anybody else writing stories about animals? Little head in his lap. What animal would you have written a story? Let's say you're sixth grade, you have this writing assignment. What animal are you going to write a story about? Well, I did write a story, which I believe I still have, about a giant crawdad. What? Yeah. And I wrote this in maybe like fourth or fifth grade. So I don't have to hypothesize, Ben. I know exactly the story. Giant crawdad. This is extremely Ohio of you, because I played a lot with crawdads in Ohio growing up in creeks, for Yes, sure. it's, a, it's a very Ohio sentiment. So there you go. That's awesome. Just a few other things that she said guided uh, her writing as well. Ignore all trends and do not let money influence any decisions that you make. She made her own rules, her own decisions. Money wasn't a factor for her. This is feeling a lot like Watterson. From Calvin and Hobbes, yeah. who was like, I'm not doing this for the money. I'm mm-hmm. doing this to educate mm-hmm. and entertain, deepen the human experience, not in it for the, the payday. So that's inspiring. That's cool to hear. All right. So I think that's a bit of the history, the trajectory of Beverly Cleary's career and life. Uh, we've got more stuff to talk about, though. Ben, do you have anything before we head off to literature? Before we leave... Uh, Which, by the way, I, next class is a literature class. We're skipping chemistry today. We're, we're going to chemistry. lit class. Yeah. I mean, I just want to make sure it's okay with the librarian before we leave history class. I have to return some books on my Well, why don't you there? take 10 minutes, issue some more citations in the hallway. Oh, my God. And then I'll meet you in lit class. What do you say? Hey, hey, you, stop running. You're not supposed to be there. I'll, I'll be right there. I'll meet you there. Hey, okay. hey, come here. All right, Ben, how many tickets did you issue? Woof, had a lot of ruffians out there. But I saved one kid from a locker. Do you know how it's incredible you can fit a human body in a locker that small? Yeah, it's like a tomb in there. It's scary. I feel like with your height, you were never concerned about being jammed in a locker. Well, as I mentioned, I did not get tall really until like ninth or 10th grade. Oh, okay. So I was okay. just average height prior to that. And I was definitely a nerdy kid. So I was prime locker material, but thankfully never got shoved into one. I I did get sat on in fourth grade. What? And you remember that. You were really holding on to this. That's a while ago. He was one of the bigger kids in class, and he was ordered to sit on me, and he did. He was ordered? 
ordered to by an even bigger kid? He was doing the bidding of another kid. Yeah. That's great. Okay, so we're in literature. This is the first time attending literature. I'm definitely going to be in the lowest reading group, having not been to literature all year. Actually, Ben, we're going to relive your childhood. If you could go sit in the corner while we talk about (laughs) this, that would be great. Here's a ball and some stickers. Go have a good time. See what you can make with that, buddy. So in preparation for this, I told Ben, hey, why don't we both read one of Beverly Cleary's books? Yeah. And in true Ben fashion, he went to the library and reserved everything on earth. I did, in fact, try to reserve every single Beverly Cleary book they had in circulation. But we did, we did limit it to 80s properties, actually. Right, right. That's true. We said, okay, you know, she's got a lot of books before and after, as we said, started in the 40s, all the way till I think she retired in um, like the mid 2000s. Okay. And Ben, what book did you read? So I had Ralph S. Mouse. And I read Ramona Forever. So if I were to put on my Batman hat, so if there's Batman, Batman Returns, and then Mm. Batman Forever... Is Ramona Forever the third installation of the Ramona series? It is actually the seventh book in the series. It is the penultimate book in the series. Hey, that's cool. Written in 1984. Ah, great year. Fantastic year. This is a point where Ramona's a little bit older. Like, you know, mentioned earlier, she started off in kindergarten and now she's she's aged up a little bit. But I'm going to tell you, she runs into some uh, frustrating figures. I... I was empathizing with young Ramona in these books. I'm going to tell you right now, as a 41-year-old guy, I was like, I feel your pain, Ramona. Frustrating figures is what I would call math class back when I was a kid. That is also frustrating Frustrating figures. figures. Oh, absolutely. Okay, Ben, uh, before we get into these books, do you have any childhood memories of reading Beverly Cleary books? So I only I only have one and it's like a vague it's a vague visual that you just like it's like a flash in the back of your brain. Okay. It's, it's almost like um we talked about in our sugar episode of those like grenade drinks. Yes. I can't remember the taste, but I can have a flash of the smell if I think mm. about it for a second. Mm. So it's kind of like how I feel about these books where it's like a poof and then it's gone real fast. Sure. When you whipped out this topic last time, I very clearly, I'm sure in my bedroom Kindergarten all the way through high school, I had a two-shelved, very wide, yellow bookshelf. Mm. And on that bookshelf, I remember it because it stuck out so clearly, I'm pretty darn sure I had the mouse and the motorcycle because it had the pink cover. And then the front, it was like this very classic art where it's like a little gray mouse and he's got a little gray helmet and he's going left to right on the book cover on a red, like it looks like an Indian style motorcycle Mm. with like the pipes out the side. And I just had that flash of like, I'm pretty sure I had that book by Beverly Cleary. But that's all That's all I can remember. Okay. Yeah, you brought up this topic. I'm assuming that Beverly has a very special corner in the library of your heart somewhere. Yeah, so I remember reading two of these books. Now, I think I've mentioned on the podcast before, I was a Judy Bloom kid. Oh, yeah. First and foremost, as like my kind of grade school books that I would read that were more of a series with characters. I was big into Judy Bloom, but I also read two of these books. So I did read Ramona the Pest. Okay. Which in my little mind, I was like, oh, of course that's an 80s book. That came out in like 55, I think. Really? I feel like that's famous. Like, I feel like I've heard that title before, the Ramona the Pest. Okay, it's 1968. I was off on the thing, but still, that's like- Still? 1968, which is 11 years before I'm born. But to my little brain, it was like, this was a contemporary in my class. Like, it's- you know, I'm reading this in like, what, 85 or 86 or whatever. So 
I just really identified with it. And I went back and reread the synopsis because I was like, I don't really remember much about the story. I remember her being in her little yellow, like, slicker, like raincoat. And I remember her being in some boots, like, what do you call them? Like those galoshes? Rubber, galoshes, thank you. Yeah. She's like in the rubber boots and she's like splashing around. And then when I reread it, one of the plot points is there's a girl in her class named Susan. She has long, springy curls of hair mm-hmm. and Ramona wants to like pull on them. And she has this oh. urge, like that's what she wants to do. And eventually in the story she does and she gets in trouble. But I just remembered that that detail and I went back. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the curly Q hair. Uh, so that was funny. Good call. Um, but, yeah, it's all about the, like, trials and tribulations of going to kindergarten. And, again, you know, Beverly um, didn't do kindergarten, but I thought she – as a kid, I fully approved. I was like – Yeah. It worked. Catched it. it. The other one I read as a kid was Runaway Ralph. So I think that's the second – it's Mouse and a Motorcycle, Runaway Ralph, and then I think Ralph S. Mouse, which oh. is what you read, if I remember correctly. That's correct. And they all seem to be very similar. Ralph gets fed up with his family. They're being oh, jerk stories. that's a theme. Okay, cool. I think all of these stories is like, my family is garbage and I'm leaving, which again, I think every <laughs> kid can identify. At some point as a kid, whether you took it seriously or it was just a fleeting thought, when you got mad, you were like, I'm going to leave you monsters behind and live in a better place with better people. Our listeners are going to deny this, and they're going to have forgotten that they did this. But you know, class of 80s high listener, that at some point, you took a crayon or a marker, you wrote a note on a letter that said, keep out, and you put it on your bedroom door. Mm. That's my gift for you this week. You forgot you did that, but you did that. You definitely did that at some point. We're fed up with your family, for sure. I thought you were, were going to say you wrote a little letter in crayon that says, peace out, I'm leaving. And then you just hit the road <laughs> with your little bindle stick. Is that what you call that with the little sack on the end? Yeah, stick? you're hopping on uh, boxcars. And... That is your vocabulary word for the week, by the way. Bindle stick. Good work. I, I think it's just called bindle. Bindle. Because it's smaller than a bundle? We're, we're getting into a lot of semantics. I mean, I just, want to, I just want to know what's going on. I want to be able to follow I, the story. Also, while we're talking about this, I think we've said the word clearly way more than we ever have. I think it's like subconsciously in our heads. We keep using the word clearly. Right? It's hard. It's very difficult. So listeners at home, go back to the beginning and start your clearly counter. So let's see how many times we say it that in would this be episode. Amazing. We are going to It's going to be good. So yeah, uh, Runaway Ralph is another one I remember reading and really enjoying. And I think what drew it to me was I was like, there's a mouse on a motorcycle. That's cool. How novel. <laughs> how novel. So I was like, uh, of course, I'm going to grab that. And uh, yeah, so that was um, my childhood memories of Beverly Cleary. Oh, wonderful. Awesome. So what was your experience reading Ralph S. Mouse as adult Benjamin? Right. So Ralph S. Mouse, uh, it's the winter, all of his like, as he calls in the book, his country family has come in to get away from the cold and they're all trying to grab his motorcycle while he's stunting around the lobby of this hotel where the family lives This is like when your night. cousins come to visit, like extended family, and you're like, who are these schmohawks and how are we related? Schmohawks. This really is a vocabulary fantastic episode. Beverly would be very proud. She likes what we're doing here. She would be. So they're trying to grab his motorcycle and it's driving him nuts. So the human, whom which he can communicate with, Ryan, takes him with him to school for Mm. quite a long period of time. Is he like the class pet, basically? Uh, He's hidden. He's secretive. Uh, Okay. Until he is eventually discovered. From what I can remember, the large majority of the novel's drama revolves around... The teacher getting really excited there's a mouse and trying to teach about mouse mazes mm. and like, you know, sending mice and rats through mazes and, you know, how they learn and how smart they are. 
And there's chapter after chapter, which is just Ralph being very nervous about wanting to do this. He has to perform. He doesn't want to do it. He breaks the rules. His motorcycle eventually gets broken by another kid, which is devastating. My goodness. And in the end, after all this drama, the kid who breaks Ralph's motorcycle becomes friends with Ryan and provides Ralph a car. To substitute the motorcycle. What? And in the book, if you just make like vroom vroom noises as a mouse, that's how you make your vehicles go. Sure. So he comes up with a new sound for the car and the car begins to move. And Ralph is like, water under the bridge, man. I got a sports car. Don't worry about the motorcycle. And these two kids, Brad and Ryan. Oh, my God. That's right. So the bully who breaks the motorcycle. Yeah. Beverly seems to like low key suggest he's coming from a rough neighborhood. Okay. Like a rough family. It's a single dad who drives a tow truck. And okay. in the book, how the book is written, that seems to be very different than how Ryan is growing up. Okay. So Brad's father meets Ryan's mother and they marry. And this bully and Ryan become like stepbrothers and they live together. Oh my goodness. So like, and that's a real fast twist at the end. They're like, by the way, now they're related. The end. <laughs> that is insane because there is a unforeseen marriage and Ramona forever is it really? as well. Yes. What is happening? Wow. Two 80s books. Remind me from Beverly's history. Did she have a single parent household or a double? She grew up with her mother and father. Okay. Well, I mean, amazing kudos. You know, we talked about like, right what you know. So she dodged the kindergarten story, but like super empathy to recognize like how many kids grow up in single parent households and like to write that in to like write what that lifestyle is like. That's amazing. That's super good. Well, on another, I don't know how much it came out in your book, because yours sounds like it took place mostly at school. Yes. This book took place pretty much all at the Quimby household. Mm. Like there were school parts, but it was mostly written sort of off camera, so to speak. Like Ramona's talking about it, but you're not necessarily in the setting of the classroom. Yeah, yeah. But a big part of these books seems to be things happening an adult world that kids don't fully understand. They're getting mm. snippets of information. They're overhearing conversations on the phone, like the one-sided conversation. But, you know, kids are largely bored with what adults do. So, like, listening to what adults are talking about is so challenging because you're like, I'm curious, but I'm also bored to death and I want to go do something else. <laughs> and I just feel like she captures that essence of childhood so well in this book um, and I don't know, like I said, how much that came through in yours because it's largely about a mouse. Yeah. But that whole thing, things happening with adults and you're on the periphery trying to figure it out, I've really identified with. And that was a big part of this book. Yeah, I see a little bit about that. Like there's um, there's a reporter who comes to class when he, when his mouse is discovered that he's going to run the maze. It makes like local news, mm. which just saying, having worked in PR for over a decade, this is not going to happen. But I'm excited that it happened in the book. It's really great. So a reporter comes to cover this mouse in this one elementary school run a maze. It's a different era, Ben. It's a different Just era. keep it there in wasn't mind. It's a different era. Not a lot going on at the time, apparently. Yeah, there weren't TikToks and <laughs> Insta feeds and all that other stuff to right. occupy our time. Right. So this reporter comes and what's interesting, which makes me like, I just have so many more questions about Beverly's life and like how she engaged with people. So the reporter comes, he's taking photographs. He's asking lots of questions, and he's very engaged, and then the article comes out that he writes, and he basically talks about how stupid this all is. Whoa. How dumb Ralph is, because he can't figure out the maze. Oh my goodness. And like, he talks about like how, I guess there's like a mouse or a rat infestation in the school, and that like the school needs, um, 
you know, maybe like, I think it's like cut its funding or something. Like something bad needs to happen because mm. there's this mouse infestation and like how damaging mice are. And I was like, wow, you really took like the whole like yellow biased journalism and blew it out hard in this book of how terrible these people are. So now I'm noticing a trend here in these 80s properties recovering. Hatred for marketing and market research and hatred for public relations and journalism. I'm just a little concerned what's going on here. All founded. I'm just going to say. <laughs> oh, my God. As someone who works in communications, yeah. I, I'm like, yeah, I get it. I get it. I get it. I mean, Ben's trying to be the old vanguard who's going to, like, defend the right. thing. And I'm just like, well, you know, this has merit as well. There's, right. there's, there's some truth here. Oh, my That's God. So, like, the teacher then gets all the kids to, like, write angry letters to the paper to, like, retract the story. That's so it's like It's interesting, like, educational about how, like, media could work. But just sure. very interesting. And how you can influence things, even as a, a youngster, that sure. your voice means something. It's just so interesting how Beverly, as the author, you know, you have a million choices, what you're going to do with that reporter. And that's what she chose to do with that character. And I was just like, who hurt you? Who wrote something mean about you or someone you loved? What happened? Well, I do have to say there's something also about fairness or the lack of fairness that also permeates her books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this one, so Ramona, after school is being babysat by this um, so her friend, it's his grandmother. And she's really mean to Ramona. She's just not very nice. She's blaming Ramona for something that's going on. And Ramona's like, it's not my fault. And Ramona's she goes home and she's stewing about it. And she's telling her parents, I don't want to go back there anymore. I don't want to stay with that woman. Beezus and I are old enough. We should be able to stay home by ourselves. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> Here's the line. Ramona was suddenly struck by a new and disquieting thought. Mrs. Kemp did not like her. Until this minute, she had thought all adults were supposed to like all children. For a grown-up to actually dislike a child and try to shame her, Mm. she was sure had to be wrong. Very, very wrong. I don't know. I just found that very powerful, this, like, acknowledgement that, you know, as a kid, like it says in there, you think, like, oh, yeah, adults like kids or whatever. And she's just like, wait, some adults don't like children. Well, you're bringing it full circle back to our very first episode of 80s High, where I talked about how Unsolved Mysteries opened that door for me. Whereas the first time I was oh, exposed right. to like some adults are out to do very bad things to children. And I well, never not just to be mean far. to them and blame them for things, but also right, right. kidnap or murder them. But so yeah. disappear them. Right, exactly. So in this book, it's basically, yeah, it's all about like growing up and changing, being brave, being responsible, making sacrifices. So eventually Beezus and Ramona are able to stay at home by themselves and they're trying to prove like uh, we're to not their gonna parents. mess this up. We got exactly this. they're not gonna yeah, mess yeah, it yeah. up. But they eventually get in a fight and Beezus kind of has acne because she's in that time of her life. And mm-hmm. uh, Ramona calls her pizza face, I think, at one point. <gasps> oh no, yeah. you did it. Low blow, Ramona. Oh, it's and all so right. Beezus is like ticked off and not talking to her. But what finally breaks the tension, Ben, is their cat dies. What? So Beezus has a cat, Picky Pick, and Picky Pick dies. And then they bury, they get together and bury the cat in the backyard before the parents come home. Oh my God. That's yeah. tra- and just to drop dead while the parents are out. Oh my God. But they kind of spin it as like they mend their wounds, they work together, and they prove to their parents that they can be responsible. And the parents are like, that's so sad, but we're also so proud of you. And I was like, <laughs> wow, this is interesting. Handling it well, parents. I mean, good job. Yeah. Yeah. Whoa, I'm like, oh, devastating. I, feel like if I buried a pet in the backyard, my family would take issue with that. I'm just going to say, did you ever bury a pet on your property? I don't think so. I buried a lot of goldfish. My cousins did, but I don't think I did. I had like a cemetery on the side of my house. Oh, wow. 
because if you if you're not good at taking care of goldfish, they don't live very long. Uh, and so I, I can picture to my head, like, there are rows of little piled up mulch with, like, a little stick of mulch vertical in the ground oh, above wow. them. I had a bunch of goldfish on the side of the house. <laughs> I forgot about that. That's crazy. Huh. So, anyway, long story short, this friend of hers, Henry, his uncle's in town. Uncle, The uncle's being, like, teasing Ramona, and she's not a fan of that. And then her aunt is in the story. Long story short, his uncle, her aunt, are the ones who get married at the end of the book. Oh, my God. This is a theme. I wonder how many times she did this in her books. I know. Now I'm like kind of curious. Oh, and then like also the like life. her dad is going back to school to be a teacher because he has a job at like a um, I think I got a warehouse and he's going back to be a teacher. And then she realizes they may have to move to a completely different town, leave all her friends. Yeah. And her mom is pregnant and what? they learn that through the story. So there's like a lot going on in this story. And, you know, their family doesn't have a lot of money and there's this wedding and the cat dies and there's, it's just – a whole lot going on, but there's just so much about like the unfairness of the world. And I just really appreciated like the childlike logic of how the world works, trying to make sense of things yeah. that you don't fully understand. And you're trying to like connect all the dots as this kid. I just thought that was cool. Did the aunt and uncle meet at a school dance in the book? No, they did not. Pulling, is, that would have been Beverly great. pulling yeah. on real life. She's just pulling from her own life, cribbing her own life. I'd love uh, So Ben. Yes. When someone has a baby, how long are they in the hospital after they have the kid? No complications. I'll just make it very simple. No complications. You have a kid. Everything goes smoothly. I bet you're home within like 48 hours. If everything goes nice and smooth, you're home within a couple of days at most. Okay. I feel like it's way faster now, but like her mom was at the hospital for like three days. That's a long time. That feels long. It just felt like a lot. I feel like now it's like in and out, in and out, in and out. Like literally the drive through in and out in Los Angeles. I mean, more or less, It's like Like, 10 minutes you wait and you drive through. Boom, boom. Yeah. You're just driving through and it's like, hey, can you just deliver my baby animal style? I would just like animal style real fast. That'd be great if you could just make that happen real fast. Thanks. Five minutes. Cool. Thanks. Thanks. And at the end of the story, Ramona is just kind of reflecting on everything. You know, she's like, hey, look at me. I've kind of grown up. I'm wonderful me. And Beza says, blunderful you. And she says, wonderful, blunderful me. And she says, she was winning at growing up. And I was like, congratulations. I don't know that I've been winning at growing up. But young Ramona, she's killing it. And and way way to like capture the hashtag winning way before Sheen got it. I mean, she's killing it. Yeah, Sheen is just now starring uh, in a small role in uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And Beverly Cleary's already winning and made it her own. Made it her own. <laughs> so, I mean, that was my experience reading the books. Did you have any other thoughts that you wanted to share? Themes that you got from the books? Well, uh, certainly you gave me Ralph S. Mouse is the one that I got to read. Yes. Because uh, he is famous for having a motorcycle. Yes. And for eight years now, I as well have been a motorcycle rider, owner and rider. If anyone else out there uh, likes motorcycles, I ride a 2013 Honda Shadow Phantom Edition 750. Phantom just means it's matte black. I don't know what any of that means, but I'll just tell you, it looks cool. It needs a sidecar. I just, I keep throwing oh, that yeah, out to Ben. No, a sidecar would be amazing. That there, that way I could put Charlie in the side. I could put my Exactly. Dog. Put your dog over there. It'd be great. So it's just like, you need a sidecar, but that aside, sweet looking bike. Honestly, one of the reasons I had to get the model, because it's low enough to the ground that I can get on and still touch the ground. Uh, it's a very <laughs> low profile cruiser, but I, I am an extremely conservative driver. I wear a bunch of armor. I've got a full head helmet and I yeah. drive the speed limit everywhere I go. I'm not doing anything crazy. Ben, tell me this. Should Ralph S. Mouse be an instructor oh my for God. new motorcycle drivers? No. 
Absolutely okay. not. Really? I'm Absolutely shocked. Absolutely not. I'm shocked and appalled. Having taken the state test and passed it for the motorcycle, because that gets you a lot of money off your insurance. Hey, well. Oh my God. That's all I could think about while I was reading Ralph S. Mel's. Because <laughs> he, he really, the only main time he rides is he rides in the beginning of the book when his cousins are there at night and the cousins are like messing with it. First of all, you never stunt while the crowd's around like that. So dangerous if you spin out and your motorcycle's flying and killing a bunch of people. He's close enough where his cousins are grabbing the motorcycle while he's like hauling oh butt. So that's insane. Second of all, if you even look at the cover of the mouse and the motorcycle, he's not strapped his helmet on. The strap <sighs> is loose, which means it's useless. Ralph. Ralph, come on, man. Um, oh my gosh. And also, this is more taste. This is not like so thing, but there are many forms of motorcycle helmet. And he's got just the top one, like that just like protects the your head, but your face is totally exposed, mm. which means like one little rock gets kicked off the highway and it goes through your eye out the back of your skull. So I wear a full face mask because it's way safer. Safety, everyone. Safety is the message. These are children's books. And I am shocked that in the children's book, he drives like a maniac in this thing. He's having a great time. I got to give it to him. But he drives like a lunatic. Now, to be fair, if a mouse is on a toy motorcycle and falls over, I don't think it's really going to get all that injured. I'm just going to put that out there. <laughs> also true. Like, oh, in mouse physics, I'm just saying. In, <laughs> it's not like a Michael Bay explosion when he falls off the little Precisely. mouse motorcycle. Exactly. I'm so glad you brought that last point up because um, – so this book is resolved – when Brad, the now brother, once bully, gifts him a car. So the motorcycle does not get fixed by the end of the book. He just gets oh. a car. If somebody broke my motorcycle and then gave me a car, I'd be like, yo, where's my motorcycle? Mm. Like, I got the motorcycle because I want to ride a motorcycle, not because I just want to get somewhere. But Ben, I gave you a free 1993 Geostorm. What more could you want? Geostorm! The movie, or for my How Did This Get Made uh, podcast lovers. Um, I guess now I am remembering there is a positive twist in the car because now the cousins aren't trying to fight the motorcycle away from Ralph. They, they can, can sit in the car. Them. They can ride with, which was like a sweet little relationship thing. But still, I'm like, yo, where's the bike? Yeah. That was my hot take on motorcycle safety in Ralph S. Mouse. <laughs> ben, do you know what's going to help you clear the tension? To learn that in the fourth book, Ralph takes a motorcycle safety course? <laughs> <laughs> so absent that, okay. maybe maybe need a little lunch. Oh, I am. Maybe I'm a little hangry. That's the problem. Because what happens hangry. at lunch? Truancy, um, <laughs> illegal hall walking. I do have a lot of these pink passes to hand out before the day's over. Yeah, so grab yourself a little something to eat and issue some more citations, <laughs> and I'll catch you after lunch in contemporary culture. Perfect. Not everyone who goes to the library goes into the library. Pity them. The outsiders. Only a step away from better things, better jobs, better money, better lives. The insiders are making their lives better by learning knowing, improving, doing, and you. What are you doing for yourself? Passing time or passing tests? Sunning or shining? Sleeping or dreaming? Reaching for a sandwich or a star? Come inside, whoever you are, whatever you do, whatever you want to be. Help yourself, help yourself. Don't be an outsider all your life. Be all you can be. Read. 
You're not going to believe what I just had to issue a ticket for. Did you have to give a citation to a mouse riding a motorcycle <laughs> through the hallway with a moving violation? The hardest part is you have to tear the, the pink slip even smaller to fit on the motorcycle. It's like a little, yeah, thumbnail. Come on, man. Get to lunch. Move along. Move along. So the impact of Beverly Cleary's career. She publishes over 40 books. She sold over 99 million copies. Wow. They have been published in over 25 different languages. And she's been recognized for umpty bajillion awards and honors. It's an actual word. Umpty bajillion? So among some of the awards, Laura Ingalls Wilder Award from the American Library Association for a, quote, substantial and lasting contribution to children's literature. Groovy. She is a U.S. nominee for the Biennial International Hans Christian Andersen Award. In April 2000, she's named Library of Congress Living Legend in the Writers and Artists category for a contribution to the cultural heritage of the United States. She gets a National Medal of Arts in 2003. Oh, my gosh. Her publisher, Harper Collins, recognizes her birthday, April 12th, as National Drop Everything and Read Day. That's awesome. In promotion of sustained silent reading. So she's been, uh, throughout her career, a big proponent of deer. Holy decorated, Batman. That's amazing. Also, the library she worked at, the schools she attended, have all bestowed like tons of recognitions for her statues, murals, uh, an endowment in her name, an honorary graduation title, and a children's library named after her, and a residence hall in her name. Oh, my God. So tons of recognition throughout the places she's worked and learned and uh, educated. In a 2011 interview for the Los Angeles Times, at age 95, Cleary stated, I've had an exceptionally happy career. That's fantastic. One of the reasons I chose this topic is because not too long ago, unfortunately, Beverly Cleary passed away. Uh, she died at her retirement home in Carmel-by-the-Sea, California, at the age of 104. That's amazing. Centurion. So March 25th, 2021, um, just a few weeks away from her 105th birthday. Again, massive impact. She's had a huge influence on a lot of other authors, including my favorite, Judy Bloom. Yeah. And just one other quick thing I had here as far as, far as adaptations uh, there was a 10-part Canadian TV series uh, about Ramona called Ramona in 1988. Okay. So you might think like Beverly Cleary, like she had a huge impact in the 80s, maybe into the 90s. But now, you know, her influence has kind of waned a little bit. There's newer authors, newer stories. In 2010, Ramona and Beezus is a movie starring Joey King as There's Ramona. There's a movie? And Selena Gomez as Beezus. What? Yeah. Selena Gomez plays Beezus in this? In 2010, a mere 11 years ago. Oh, wow. Look at that. That's cool. Yeah. So again, the influence has gone on longer than I think I would have expected. When I first went into this topic, I was like, is Beverly's work still as widely known or regarded or, you know, even just read or consumed these days? And clearly it still has an impact uh, as of, you know, about a decade ago. So wow. very cool. That's awesome. Get it, Beverly. Yeah, so that's what I have. Um, are there any thoughts that you had about contemporary culture, her impact on later works, anything like that, her life, her career? I mean, as far as like what her works have inspired, I think Ralph S. Mouse started Sturgis, the giant motorcycle rally that happens every year <laughs> in the middle of the United States. This guy. Is how it got underway. At least, again, this is from a Wikipedia page. You know, I, I always ask you for like a sincere input in this guy, <laughs> always with the comedy. So, I mean, Sturgis is also a very 
unsafe motorcycle rally. So it just made sense that Ralph S. Mouse inspired it. So uh, no, I <laughs> safety, everyone. We cannot stress that enough. And then the last thing I wanted to mention were a couple of sources for where I got a lot of my information today. So obviously there's the Beverly Cleary website where you can go learn about her. There is a video of an interview with her. Um, there's also a great interview on, from, on PBS.org. It is the Oregon Art Beat Discovering Beverly Cleary. And it's a great little hour-long documentary about Beverly. Uh, it's just a, it's a great look at her life and career. And so we'll put it in the show notes. And I encourage you, if you're interested, to go check it out. It was it was wonderful. So I just I wanted to mention that as part of a, another way that, you know, you can kind of honor her memory and, you know, maybe relive some of the fun nostalgia you had as a kid reading her books. Nice. Well, if we have wrapped up the immense influence she's had on literature, education, entertainment going forward, then there's really only one thing left to do. And it, it's not a class it sounds like she wrote a lot about. She was a literature guru. Yes. But we need to go to math class and put these books on the scales and see how they hold up today. Okay, Ben. I lied. I, I said I was just going to rename second period to literature. We've now, we're in fourth period, frustrating figures. Frustrating Otherwise, figures. The, the subject formerly known as math. I feel very weak coming into this math class because I've only clearly have a memory of a single book. And she had over 40 books. So before I learned everything I did while we recorded tonight, having just read Ralph S. Mouse, third in the series about Ralph coming out in 1982, I can't say it struck a magic star with me. You know, when I got to the end of it, I have to admit my reaction was sort of like, what was the big deal? And, you know, I look back at, at books we've talked about or books that I loved as a kid, and, you know, I didn't feel the innovative mechanics of Choose Your Own Adventure. Mm. I didn't feel the the philosophical plumbing and the humor of Calvin and Hobbes. I didn't feel the beautiful poetry of Shel Silverstein. Even, like, scary stories to tell in the dark. Like, I didn't feel that mischievous, like, ooh, I shouldn't be reading this, but I am. <laughs> mm, mm. Or even, like, Lemony Snicket's Series of Unfortunate Events. I didn't feel like it was teaching me a lot of cool vocabulary. So I wasn't sure what really stood out. But now, having understand what her collection is and seeing her massive litany of awards, I feel like if she had like a general's vest on and all her awards were little badges, you would hear her jingling from like a mile away before she came I in. think the proper word is festooned. Festooned. Her, lap her lapel would be festooned, right. yes, with all of her medals. Right. So that being the case, I completely see the huge vacuum in children's literacy that she saw the opportunity for and filled, which is so critical. Who knows how many, you said 84 million or something copies were sold, something like 99 that. 99 million. 99 million. How many millions of children she inspired to solve everyday problems that they were mm -hmm. having, to have empathy for other children, to understand adults a little better. I much better now, thanks to 80s High Podcast and your <laughs> history class, uh, much better respect uh, her impact on the world. And so take with a grain of tiny little mouse cheese my review of Ralph S. Mouse uh, because it's it's undeniable her essential impact on literature for children, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, to your point, these aren't books that are going to be fantastical adventures. They're not going to be like you said, Lemony Snicket, it's not going to be your, even your Harry Potters. But I think what it does have is, you know, what she strove for it to be, which was everyday kids 
doing everyday things that a young person could relate to. And that being the draw into the worlds that she created. You know, I, I think now, obviously, we're at a different place for children's literature because it's evolved to that point. So I think it's one of those things that it's hard to see the full value of it now because of where it's come from. You, you think about like how television has evolved, how movies have evolved. And you go back to something that like was revolutionary in its time that now doesn't seem so revolutionary. You know, mm -hmm. I think about like um, Citizen Kane or even, mm -hmm. you know, something about the special effects of The Matrix, right? Where it's like, oh, we're doing these amazing things. And now it's like, okay, yeah, but at that time it was revolutionary. And I, I, in my mind, I just really do feel like this was one of those steps in children's literature where she saw a clear vacuum and said, we're going to fill it with these relatable stories. That's what the kids wanted and her library. That's what she delivered on and clearly stands the test of time if we're still going to make a movie about it in 2010. Yeah. Um, and we're here almost 100 million books later. Amazing. It was a great little peek back into children's literature. I will also say this. I remember a book like this I would have thought was a million miles long and would have taken me forever to read. Yeah. And I felt very accomplished reading this book as quickly as I did. I was like, look at me, Chris. You're coming up in the world. So if you were to have to go back to elementary school right now, which reading group would you be in now? Oh, my gosh. I feel like you should try and write your teacher to be like, look how far I've come. Look how fast I read. Mrs. Bowling, Mrs. Jetter. My name's Chris. I was in your class in the early 80s. If you can tell me uh, what reading group I was in, if you can go rustle through your notes from 30 plus years ago, that would be super. Thank you. I hope you're doing well. Because I just want you to know I moved I moved one group up. Yeah. I'm a super fast reader now. Yeah. I, I like to contest my placement. <laughs> so anyway, I wanted to do this episode again in recognition of Beverly's life uh, because of her passing. Yeah. And I feel it's unfortunate you know, but also she lived a wonderful full life and it sounds like she lived a life that she wanted and without regrets and that she made a impact and she said it was exceptional and what more could we we want in that? But thank you for indulging me on this topic, Ben. For sure. hundred percent. Like I said, it was kind of a surprise topic, but one that I felt was very timely. I'm glad we, we had a chance to venture down this little part of uh, 80s nostalgia. No, and I, I hope we honored the family and the estate as best we could. I mean, I know, you know, Part of our podcast format is we got jokes, you know, we're trying to keep it light. Like, like uh, someone told Beverly early on, write something funny. People love keep funny. Fun. So trying yeah. to keep it fun, trying to keep it light. I, I want to say we, we probably would have got a little chuckle out of Beverly. She seemed like she, yeah, you know, I think she, she, had a, she had a good sense of humor. She's so. been down with it. So, uh, yeah. but no, the utmost respect for what was accomplished and the influence of it. Okay. So I believe there's one more item of business ah, yes. on the agenda. Wait, you, slow down. Hold on. Hold on. I got to write a ticket real fast. No, hey, not the did. tickets, Ben. Yeah, not yeah, the no, tickets. Sorry, sorry. The uh, next topic. <laughs> right. Oh my God. My favorite part of the show. So we have been building a trend on this show that you might not have been aware of. And when you beautiful mind it and you look at all the pieces come together <laughs> in the sky, you're like, okay, obviously this is what's going to happen. Oh, okay. Not too long ago, we did... Calvin und Hobbes, the German edition of Calvin and Hobbes. I read Calvin E. Hobbes. But Calvin e. Hobbes right, you did the Spanish one. Um, and so on the cover of, of the one that I have, uh, Calvin is rocketing down, um, Calvin and Hobbes are rocketing down a hill in a wagon. Mm. And I was like, that looks crazy fun to ride a wagon down a hill. I love that. Says the guy who just admonished a mouse for crazy driving of a motorcycle wants to ride a wagon down a massive hill. 
I mean, there's a lot of safety precautions in place. I want you to just study the inconsistencies that you just presented to us. Think on it tonight. Ruminate. Super Mario Brothers 3. Such a great episode. We talked about Super Mario World and like Mario rides Yoshi in Super Mario World that we talked okay. a lot about. Like, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But then we get to the never ending story and our hero Atreyu rides an incredible horse named Artax suffering from manic depression who then sinks into the Swamp of Sorrows. But then he and Bastion get to ride a luck dragon. Mm-hmm. And lastly, we just did Beverly Cleary where you assigned me Ralph S. Mouse who rides a motorcycle. Okay. And I was like, you know what? The 80s are full of awesome rides. You've got the Batmobile. You've got Ecto-1. You've got Knight Rider. You've got the A-Team van. Mm-hmm. There are some sweet rides in the 80s. Okay. And I was like, you know what? What is the coolest thing to ride? What's the coolest thing in all of possible contemplation to jump on the back of or into the cab of and head off into the sunset? And there's only one answer. A DeLorean. <laughs> That's not, it's not the spiteful picket. It's not the spiteful picket. The correct answer would be dinosaurs. Okay. Because I also thought you and I have talked a lot about the ridiculousness of, thanks to deregulation, how many cartoons existed in the 80s just to sell toys. Right. And it all came together for one wonderful little flash in the pan, just one season, but one of the coolest toy collections ever, Dino Riders. Oh, Dino Riders. Gosh, it sounds familiar. I I think I know what these are. I may have had some, but I'm going to have to go check it out and see. If this is not what I had, I'm going to do my research and find out what I actually had toy-wise. I feel like most listeners will have that same reaction where they're like, I think I had some? Also, I, I can state emphatically, I am not thinking of Battle Beasts. I know oh, that good. for a clear <laughs> okay. fact. Thank so goodness. that's out of the way, but this is amazing. I'm looking forward to it. So for next week on 80s High, saddle up your Velociraptor, strap some missiles to your Brachiosaurus, because we're going into the battle zone that is Dino Riders. Yes! Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical! Stay radical!